good, everyone? Uh, this is Gene GD Demby of Cool Fuji. Um, I'm here with Joel Anderson. What's up, Joel? Hey, what's up? How you doing, fellas? Uh, Joel is a reporter at BuzzFeed. Jamel Bowie. What's up, Jamel? Hey. Um, Jam is a staff writer at Slate. Uh, last week, through weird circumstances, we all found ourselves reporting on the big story in Ferguson, the death of Michael Brown and the the consequences of that um and we actually bumped into each other on the street randomly so i we just want to kind of compare notes um about what we saw when we were there and about the situation more broadly michael brown an 18 year old who lives in ferguson missouri was gunned down by a cop named darren wilson although we didn't originally know wilson's name for quite a bit unless you've been living on the rock you've seen that story become sort of the locus of all our conversations around um police brutality and racial profiling and inequity in the criminal justice system as well as housing segregation and a bunch of other stuff I wanted to talk to both Joel and Jamel because they both took on this from different angles. Jamel did a really great piece on Slate that you should check out and which we'll link to about the background here. So, Jamel, could you just kind of run down sort of what what is it about St. Louis and sort of the forces in play, specifically about Ferguson and the suburbs there? Right. So St. Louis has basically been segregated by, by policy for as long as people have been segregating by policy. I mean, this is a bit distinct from the informal segregation of the South where it's very much segregated by custom Mm -hmm. um st louis the first ordinances meant to you know put blacks in one area away from everyone else came down in 1917 they were shut down by the supreme court but they came back and sort of less racially explicit but just as effective um means of segregation in the 30s and 40s and so for pretty much the entire history of the st louis area from the city to the county there have been like intensely segregated uh neighborhoods uh, segregated cities, and so on and so forth. And so, just as a as a starting as a starting sort of point, um, the white and black communities in in the St. Louis area are divided and separate in a way that's actually very unusual, even for even for places that are segregated. Yeah, so I think added, St. Louis is like the ninth most segregated metro region in the United States. Right. Um, and and it, it, what what makes it even more unusual is that so the, the the Detroit area is the most segregated metro area in the United States, but even Detroit went from being sort of integrated to being segregated. Right there was there was so there was movement from one direction to another. St. Louis just like began as a segregated area, and it never um, integrated really. Then it had right, integration. never never really integrated. So Joel, when you were there after in the aftermath of the shooting, you actually wrote pretty movingly about your experiences. People were protesting, and the cops. Uh, response the police officer's response to protesters well that i mean essentially that you you see how that segregation plays itself out in the way that people live their lives there and sort of the way they experienced uh the aftermath of brown shooting uh, i mean basically and i think it's really hard for people to understand if they weren't there but like we're talking everything happened within basically like a four block stretch of the city mm-hmm. um and in the in the in the majority black area and right. you know it's so like i mean it's so you you have all of this you know this commotion all of this you know protest and 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 just a lot of tension in this one specific area and mm-hmm. then you'd go into the other side of the town and you might as well have been in another city or another municipality right um, exactly and so people really didn't i mean it, 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 this really affected a very small number of people in terms of like their day-to-day lives but it, for for the you know the twenty I guess the white people make up about what twenty percent of the population there now maybe a quarter a quarter of the population there now and so they really didn't have to grapple with like what was going on and in that in that conflict you could just sort of see how how these things came to be that like you have a 
uh, overwhelmingly white uh, city government, uh, overwhelmingly white uh, police department. I mean, at this point, you know, people that pay attention to that story know that only three of the uh, police officers on a 53-man force were black. Um, right. And that, you know, that, that they're just, they, they were just sort of oblivious or, you know, in, intentionally so, possibly, to the complaints of black people who've been over-policed and sort of, you know, monitored in, in this, you know, really oppressive way for years. And so you could just sort of see that, you know, you got one side of town that doesn't know what the hell is going on and another that's sort of like, you know, bears the burdens of all these other, like, really weird socioeconomic factors. And it, uh, I think that's what made it such a, a cauldron because people, I, I think, were really, really upset and they felt like they hadn't been heard. And all, when we got there, we just saw sort of like the consequences of that, right? Um, I think it, yeah. people felt more invested in their government or felt that their government actually, you, you know, felt like they were worth investing in, that maybe we, maybe it would have been a little different, but there's really no way to know. Yeah, and it, to your point about Wolf of Obliviousness, the thing I think that was striking about just like the numbers, we saw the numbers from 2013, uh, the state attorney general looked at the numbers of stops in Ferguson and like 90 um, something percent of the people uh, who were stopped in Ferguson last year were black, right? To, to the point about obliviousness, it's not even like obliviousness so much as like white people actually don't have contact with the police the way that black people <laughs> have contact with the police, right. right? The cops are just stopping black people. They are like quite literally not stopping white people. All those tensions or whatever are like only sort of existing among um, people who live in a certain part of the, the city. or Right. Well, I mean, for, for you guys, I mean, every bla- I'm assuming every black person you talk to of a certain age, I mean, let's just say the cutoff is 18, all of yeah. them had had some sort of contact with the police in some sort of way, right? Like, I'll, at least I did. That was my experience talking to people there. Do you guys have roughly the same experience with that? I had the exact same experience. Yeah. If you, I mean, it was, it was almost... <laughs> <laughs> it almost became kind of a game. Like, <laughs> Tell me about how many, with the cops. How many people could I talk to before I didn't hear someone who didn't have a story with the cops? Mm-hmm. Right, right. For the record, that I never won that game. <laughs> yeah, it was wild because uh, the, the, so I spoke to a bunch of cats, and you know, one cat told me, you know, he was he's a high school teacher. He's with his son and his fiance, and the cops stopped him and threw him on the ground. His son watched him get cuffed and yelled at, and son was crying. And this other cat told me this crazy story in which like the cops beat him up and threw him down on the side of the road. And I was like, you know, I mean, it's the kind of thing that's like sort of fanciful. Like the cops beat his ass and threw him on the side of the road. And then he's like, if you don't believe me, Google me. I Google him. The first thing pops up is his name. He got a settlement from the city. I'm like. Yo, this is this is kind of bananas, right? right? And so, like, this is sort of the the folklore. I'm not just like the real life, but it's also this. This is like part of the story that people like understand. Like, everyone has a story that they're like relating to each other. I mean, I'm assuming they're related to each other. But like, when we went there and asked, it didn't take a, a lot of prodding at all. Like, everybody had a story, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I went to a, a barber shop that's sort of right in the center of things. It was right across the street from. Uh, the McDonald's. It's called Primetime Barbershop. And that's sort of where I let off with uh, one of my stories. And yeah, I mean, they would talk, they would talk about how cops would just like wait. Like, first of all, you know, mm-hmm. if, if customers pulled out of the parking lot, they'd wait across the street and wait to pull them over. Sometimes they'd come into the parking lot and ask people for identification. Sometimes they'd come into the shop, you know, and, and, and you know, just sort of be an, an intimidating force. And so, I, you know, it's just like, you know, <sighs> It, it was just really sort of, I, I mean, I guess maybe, you know, we've all lived in sort of cities and we're black men. So, you know, we, I guess we sort of know about the relationships that black people have with the police. But even for, even for me, like, this just seemed like, wow, like people just sort of got, have gotten used to the idea that the cops are not really there protecting and serving, but they're just more of a, like, an instrument of, you know, to, to, to police people, you know, that they, that they don't, 
the police are not really part of their community in, in that way. That they're just there to harass them. They think of them as like a basically an organized gang. You know? Right, right, and we saw right. those numbers about how like a quarter of the city of Bergen's budget comes out of like uh, the fines they get from from stopping people and from court fees, like two point six million dollars a year or something like that. And it's a small, it's a small town. It's like you know twenty one thousand people, give or take. Considering the level of policing that people seem to be subjected to, it's not a particularly unsafe town. I mean, Michael Brown's killing was the first homicide there in twenty fourteen. Right. So, Joe, you were actually out there the, the night. I mean, you got tear gassed. Yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about that. I mean, you wrote about it really movingly. But um, uh, can you can you explain like what that was like when it was when when everything popped off? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first couple of nights I was there, like you know, it sort of you know things went through. Uh, there was like a rhythm to it, right? But like, you know, earlier in the night it'd be you know hundreds of protesters and they'd you know kind of go around and uh, the police would be a presence there. And but, you know, it, it would be relatively peaceful. And then around 11 o'clock at night, um, think, you know, there'd be a younger, a little bit surlier crowd uh, mm-hmm. that would start. And so then they, you know, there'd be a lot of like uh, a, a, lot, a lot of threatening between both sides. You know, you know, uh, some of the protesters push up to the line against the cops and then the cops would pull out that, you know, put on their ride gear. And then we, we sort of went through that over and over again. And then mm-hmm. fi- I think it was Friday night that the governor announced that there was going to be a curfew. And so that next night, all hell broke loose, essentially. Um, I mean, what we what essentially we had was that, you know, I think the cops had just gotten sort of, t- you know, they were moving people off the street. And I mean, we, we sort of knew going into it. I'd heard from people that night before. They're like, yo, like, we're not moving. We're not getting the hell out of here. Like, we don't, you know, we have a right to stay in our, you know, to, to stand on the street. I mean, you know, we pay taxes, yada, yada, yada. And so it was inevitable that it was going to be really bad. And so the first night uh, there was tear gas. Obviously, you know, they brought they brought out the armored vehicles. And it was, I mean, a, a pretty bad experience. You're thinking, wow, like, I've never seen anything like this. Like, how could this possibly get worse? Well, the next night, um, about eight or nine o'clock, like, you know, this is, I mean, we've got three more hours until curfew. And you kind of feel like the night is building towards that, right? But then... Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, like you just see tear gas just come, you know, just like in flash bombs, just all of a sudden. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, right. Like early, hours street. earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And we're just like, what the hell is going on? Like, why, you know, why are they doing this? And mm-hmm. I think it was just like, you felt like we were on the precipice of like a huge disaster. Like, I mean, I think one thing that I, I kept saying over and over again was that I can't believe somebody didn't die in the middle of all of this because yeah. um, I, I, it's just, it's just hard to believe because I mean, the cops were. They really ratcheted up uh, their response mm. and just in that time. I mean, they didn't give people a chance to sort of move on. I mean, we had children out there, people that were handicapped, um, and we're all getting tear gassed, all having to run away from flash grenades. It was, I mean, it was pretty scary. Like, I mean, I know a lot of people compare it to a war zone, and I'm, I, 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 that probably is not an apt comparison. But for people that have never been in anything like that, like, it's just something that you would never expect to see. Uh, in a U.S. city, right, where, like, essentially the local police force has declared war against, like, a small subset of the population there. So I don't think I could ever prove this, but my going theory, at least about the psychology of that response, is that, you know, Ferguson's a kind of place, and the St. Louis area generally is a kind of place where, uh, you know, black people don't hold very much in, in, the, in the way of political power or, like, civic power. And I think this... The, the, the early demonstrations and protests were actually like, you know, black people exercising civic power in a serious way. And the response, whether consciously or not, was kind of like a sort of a, 
I can't believe this is happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I really do think the police reacted in, in sort of a, sort of a, a wide-eyed disbelief that led to um, draconian, a draconian response. Yeah, and so to, on the flip of that, so I was talking to somebody who I really respect, who's a journalist that I've worked with in the past um, on some stuff, and he was saying to me, like, you know, he was out there talking to the same cats that Jamel, I mean, that, that Joel was talking to, um, and he knew that those cats were armed, and so one of the things, and he's certainly not like a, a guy who, like, tends to be inclined to pro-cop, but he was basically like, yo, like, if you were out there with these dudes as the night was getting longer and longer, you knew these cats were, a lot of them were drunk, a lot of them had been smoking something, whatever, um, and they had guns, he was like, you know... He like as bad as that response was, right? If the police response was seen as overly aggressive, he's like, if one of those cats would have squeezed off a shot at the cops, like it would have been a disaster. Like it would have, like the police would have just reacted in this way. That would have been just, you know. And yeah. to Joel's point about like, is we're kind of fortunate no one died. Um, I, that was sort of what I kept thinking about. Like, you know, um, just I don't. I think what we saw was like a tinderbox, you know, that kind of finally exploded, but it seemed like, it seemed like it also could have been worse, even though it looked really bad. Right. Well, I, I'll say, you know, I, I, cause yeah, I saw a lot of the same things. I mean, every night you'd essentially see a situation where like a car, like this lone car would drive down the street and it'd be speeding towards the cops at the other end of the street. And you're like, what the hell is happening here? You know, like that would happen over and over again. Like if they almost as if they were testing the cops to see if they would shoot at them. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and like so they were speeding never... at the at the cops, like who were like lined up on the other yeah. street, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you'd see this car, like a car with a couple dudes, and obviously they'd be you know lit, and you know somebody, thankfully somebody would step out and be like, yo, 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 what the hell are you doing? And like, so mm-hmm. you always felt like you know something horrible was going to happen. But I think even though like hearing what your friend said, I was more afraid of the police because I just felt like especially. After that, that 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 night where they you know just sort of got started clearing the streets before the curfew because yeah. it felt like they didn't have any rules like there was no there was no rules about where you were going to go like that you couldn't you know if you had to get home and your car happened to be on the other side of the street like they didn't really give a shit like you had to like just figure it out which is what I had to do one of those nights you know um, yeah. and there was really no reasoning with them. Um, uh, throughout that and then I mean you just kind of think about it it's just like yo like this is over curfew man like <laughs> like, right, like, I mean, right, like right. this is really dangerous like, this is really dangerous like it's just like if you don't clear the streets by 12 we're going to like what tear gas you and flash bomb you to hell and like potentially create a situation where people will start shooting at each other and it's just like when you think about it in that way I'm just like if somebody died over that like I don't know that that like that 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 seems reasonable you know this conversation has become sort of about everything, right? It's become a conversation about racial profiling. You know, I saw people there who had, like, Justice for Romarley Graham signs. You know what I mean? Like, um, it's, a, it's a conversation about the militarization of police. And I sort of, I think I always wonder about these stories is, like, how much the resolution of these specific cases do anything to resolve the kind of bigger issues that they're now, like, kind of inextricably tied to, right? Like, if, let's say Darren Wilson gets... Um, is is brought to trial. Like, no matter how that trial is resolved, it doesn't get to all these other issues that um, we see as part of this, right? It doesn't get to housing discrimination. It doesn't get to, to kind of uh, policing. It doesn't get to mass incarceration. It doesn't get to racial profiling. Like, what do we do? I've been, I've been um, kind of struggling with that question all week, and I was trying to write something about it, and I just couldn't. Like, I, I, I don't know what we do um, because... You know, Ferguson is something that, to me, 
stands as an explicit example of how real this stuff is that like when we talk about police brutality and when we talk about um sort of unfairness in the criminal justice system when we when we when we talk about kind of the existing economic inequalities that are heavily racial um that we're not just making things up (laughs) we're we're not looking for things to complain about like these are real things that are happening to real people and even even when something gets dramatic as Ferguson, there are there are folks who are in denial. I'm sure you know people felt like this 50 years ago, but I I think we're still at this point where the next step. I mean, we can we can write about it, and we can talk about it, and we can cover the marches and cover the organizing. But the next step kind of has to come from white people. Like white people have to look at this and decide what they want to do. Because I'm not sure what. And when I say we, I mean black people. I'm not sure black people. I'm not sure what else there, there is more for us to do. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, and it's sort of weird, right? Because, I mean, one of the things you heard over and over again, and you know, uh, in the in the days as the protests winded down and, you know, the funeral came around, is that, you know, black people have got to vote. Uh, we've got to have more political representation, yada, yada, yada. But I just, like, that just seems, like, a little too neat, doesn't it? Like, it doesn't seem like that really gets, like, that doesn't, like that doesn't really get it like racial profiling, right? Like that doesn't really get it like housing segregation. Um, like I, again, like I said, like, you know, actually housing segregation, when you talk about what white people do, like, it's really interesting because it's like, we always look at that as like, that's a force beyond our control, right? That like, well, there's nothing, you know, people just sort of choose to live where they live, but like nobody really questions like, well, why is it that like when, you know, according to one study that came out that when white people talk about, you know, a diverse neighborhood that, you know, anything over 10% black is like a little bit too much for them and then they're willing <laughs> right. to move, right? And so like, right. you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I think Jim is exactly right. Like we have, they, they have to, some of the owners has to be, they have to be sort of outraged at that, uh, at what happened over there on West Florissant Avenue. To Joe's point, it was happening in a four-block radius, basically. But, like, on the other side of town, you know, there seemed to be, like, you know, this, this not even denial was, like, you know, people are making Ferguson look bad. Like, you know, people are making this town look like something it's not. So maybe we're more cognizant of it because we're not from there. Well, I mean, but that, I mean, that's just sort of obnoxious, right? Because that is what Ferguson is. is it look, Ferguson looked bad because that's exactly what was happening there. Like nobody, you know, nobody came there and created this problem. You know, outsiders didn't, you know, like, uh, you know, kill Michael Brown or like, you know, disproportionately stop black motorists or whatever, or only have three black police officers. Like that's, I mean, that's what it is. Like, and if that, if that, if that happens to look bad, then I guess like you have to sort of think about, well, maybe my city just isn't, you know, the, you know, the, the land of milk and honey, like we think it is, you know? I mean, that's, it's it's sort of like it's a classic complaint of people who are being pressured on their practices. Like, why do you got to pay attention to the bad things? Like, what about all the what about our whistle stop custard stand here? Right, right. right. And I, I mean, I'm sure the custard's delicious, but like, right. you know, Negroes getting beat like hotcakes is. Pretty <laughs> <bad>. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, no, I mean that's you're right. I mean, people would talk about, oh, we have a lovely farmers market, and I'm like, okay, that's <laughs> that's fantastic, right? But like, uh, you know, what about you know what about that guy you beat the shit out of, and your your police department had to reach a, a settlement with that guy, like that. These are things that actually happen too. Like you just can't. I mean, it's just. I mean, it's sort of the problem of racism, right? Or even in this country, like we wanted to be Abraham Lincoln, and we overcame. You know, the Civil War. We came together, and you know, we figured it out. Like eventually, America got it right. But like nobody wants to 
nobody wants to own all of their history. And that's kind of the problem you see there with Ferguson is that they don't want to own everything about their city. They just want us to focus on like, oh, the good parts. And we came together and played some nice T-shirts. You know what I mean? But like that's, <laughs> I mean, you know, you could do that anywhere, but you kind of have to grapple with like the things that, um, the things that make your city not so great too. I appreciate y'all for ducking out of your day job and um, to talk to me for 20 minutes or so. You can follow Joel Anderson at blanking 12 on Twitter. That's black ink 12, all one word. Um, you can follow, follow Jamel Bowie at J Bowie, J B O U I E uh, on Twitter. Um, you can follow me. I'm Gene Demby at G E E D E E two one five. on behalf of my play cousins here and the rest of the post crew. Uh, be easy. <laughs>